Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, discussing the new report, Who Pays? Before we leave, I just want to remind you of a point made earlier in the show, and that is to claim the Oregon Kids Credit if your family is eligible. Be sure to file a tax return. And if you're not eligible, you can help our state's most vulnerable children by spreading the word about this new tax credit. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. following program is a rebroadcast. Dates, times, and events mentioned in the following program have already occurred. Thank you for tuning in to KBOO Portland. It's Friday morning and welcome to Film at 11 here on Community Radio, KBOO Portland. Today we have a few new releases. French and Iranian classics, and two new film books. So, first up with three new films. This is our best chance to find a habitable planet. We breed and raise our own crew. Train them in isolation to prepare them for life in space. The voyage will take 86 years. Voyagers is the 10th film so far about the attempts by people on Earth to, by sending teams to populate a new planet. It's a Lionsgate movie and it's in theaters. It stars Ty Sheridan and Lily Rose Depp as teenagers on a lifetime voyage supervised by Colin Farrell who turns in a decent performance. The movie, though, is a little bit like an Orson Scott Card novel where teenagers are in charge. So it turns from Lord of the Flies to a little bit of 2001, but comes across as a high school play that's set in the same hallway, which is used over and over again. Worst of all, it's highly predictable eventually, and also just plain boring. This isn't your first life, Evan. You are an infinite. You've lived and died a thousand times. If you can remember who you were, you will understand who you can become. Infinite is a new Mark Wahlberg action film on Paramount+. Plus. It's, uh, again, a derivative. It, it's about people who, like the Highlanders, in this case, are reincarnated into new human beings while retaining all memories of their previous lives. Mark Wahlberg doesn't know that he's one of these people until Sophie Cookson and Toby Jones tell him about this. And he's also being pursued by Chiwetel Ejiofor, his nemesis, who wants to end this reincarnation business. It's directed by Antoine Fuqua, and it is, at times somewhat clever, at other times ridiculous, as when the villain pours honey into Toby Jones' mouth for some reason. It doesn't make any sense, and the film as a whole just feels so derivative and lackluster in its derivativeness. But now the good news. In a faraway land called Washington Heights, 
say it so it doesn't disappear. Washington Heights. Lights up on Washington Heights up at the break of day. In the Heights is a film that's going to make you happy. This is the musical that Lin-Manuel Miranda created before Hamilton and is set in the upper west side of Manhattan and is fun and inspirational with incredibly well-staged massive dance numbers and a good cast that includes Anthony Ramos, Marisa Barrera, Jimmy Smits, and many, many more. Toward the end of the year, Steven Spielberg's adaptation of West Side Story comes out, but I have to believe that the edge would go to this one because of its great spontaneity and real feel for the people and place. Now, let's hear from Britta Gordon on Abbas Karostami's early Coker trilogy. I guess this review comes under the heading of, it's always a good time to, dot, dot, dot. So today that kind of time will be devoted to Abbas Kiarostami. The Iranian director who died in 2016, made his most well-known films in Iran, was a revered figure in the global film community, and probably should be credited with the most ingenious and thoughtful use of cars as film sets in works that did not involve car chase scenes. Recently, I watched what is known as his Cocaire trilogy, Where is the Friend's House, released in 1984, Life and Nothing More in 1992, and Through the Olive Trees in 1993. If anything, these are Kiarosami's signature films, and I'd never seen them. They kicked off a series of questions, none of which I could really answer, but which I'll worry a bit here, such as, do we have an American Kiarostami, and do we need one? Alternatively, what makes this technique so powerful and might they be more powerful to a non-Iranian audience? And why do these seem seem mystical when they are often about a very brutal reality? By the way, he apparently did not think of them as a trilogy, but it's impossible not to make that connection. The three films use the same actors and locations and really talk to each other in all kinds of ways. If you haven't seen them, in short, the first film, Where is the Friend's House, follows a young boy as he tries to deliver a notebook to a school friend who will be expelled if he doesn't have it. The second, Life and Nothing More, follows a stand-in for the director and his son as they negotiate the many obstacles on their way to searching out this young actor in the first film after the devastating earthquake of 1990, which killed tens of thousands of people in northwestern Iran. The third film, Through the Olive Trees, is about the making of a film in the immediate aftermath of that earthquake in that area with many of the same actors. In reading a memoir of Eudora Welty, the novelist and short story writer, I came across this sentence, quote, the events in our lives happen in a sequence in time, but their significance to ourselves, they find their own order, a timetable not necessarily, perhaps not possibly chronological. The time as we know it subjectively is often the chronology that stories and novels follow. It is the continuous thread of revelation, unquote. This seems like an ideal entry point to start talking about Kiarostami, because his films are often grounded in a concrete chronology. You're following a small boy as he makes his way through a landscape, a man and a boy in a car as they follow a road, the end of which they hope is finding that same young boy after an earthquake has leveled his village. A young man as he follows a young woman, he has decided he'll marry, talking to her continuously from 20 feet behind. These are examples from the Cocaire films, but you can take other Kiarostami films just as easily. To an extraordinary degree, he was a filmmaker devoted to having us experience time pass along with the film's inhabitants. But the revelations themselves are roundabout, not continuous. 
while you are watching a continuous and pressing drama of someone in search for or quest for something very immediate. In fact, watching a Kiarostami film, watching people as they are diverted from one compelling search, even briefly, into another, literally getting off the side of the road to enter into another person's life, it's more of a circling back process, a rethinking that Kiarostami offers. But not only that, you have time to think about how the kinds of things you're seeing in a film affects your feelings, how what you want for the film's characters, and how that desire is continually thwarted, allows you to see other important things, allows for revelation as a side note, as music that's playing as you're hurrying from place to place, or overhearing comments that might only gain significance many years later. And in fact, there are always bothersome elements in Kiarostami films that you almost want to swat away like flies. Odd creaks or noises in the courtyard of a house, the unnerving sound of helicopters throughout much of life and nothing more, or a father watching his son with a suspicious, almost malign look that might or might not mean he is indeed malign, and that has no obvious effect on events in the film, but only raises a bit of doubt, and thus revelation in our minds as to our young hero's own home life. Kiarostami has been justly praised for his ability to use very simple film structures and stories to extraordinarily profound effect. In Where is the Friend's House, we see two friends sitting side by side in school in an excruciating sequence in which one boy is castigated by the stern teacher for his lack of a notebook, told that he will be expelled if he arrives again without it. Our hero goes home after school, only to find that he has taken his friend's notebook by mistake. Drama. He's got to get it back, but he doesn't know exactly where the friend lives, and as he desperately begs his mother to allow him to go and find his friend, deals with his grandmother who tells him he's gotten her stairs dirty, runs back and forth between his home and a somewhat neighboring village following reports of the boy's sightings, many things come to mind. As he negotiates yet another series of rocky steps, you realize that in a film, just having those steps provides an overwhelming sense of drama and anticipation. And having to negotiate them slowly with an old man complaining of his sight, when that journey will bring him no closer to delivering the notebook, and you're listening to the man's complaints and registering the boy's impatience with a kind of split mind, enjoying the man's monologue and agonizing over the boy's dilemma, it's an amazing piece of filmmaking, and it brings so much to life in your mind. The same thing happens in a village scene where his grandfather interrogates the boy and then turns to another man and delivers a long monologue on the necessity of being hard on boys, no matter their behavior, in order to bring them up correctly. At the same time that you acknowledge how troubling this is, to know that this sweet child is growing up in this environment and the inherent obstacles that this kind of society imposes on any kind of progress, exemplified by the boy's search, you are also yearning to be back with a boy, to hurry him along to an eventual happy ending. Kiarostami plays with this contradiction over and over, making you aware of the pain and pleasure of experiencing drama as you experience it. He's one of the most profoundly meta film directors I can think of, enticing this kind of distancing via the most apparently heartfelt musings of people who clearly inhabit their place and time. Of course, Kiarostami was always in the background helping to engineer his films. In Through the Olive Trees, the character who slowly becomes the main protagonist, a young mason who has been hired to act in the film, and is actually, and seemingly fruitlessly, pursuing the young woman who has also been hired to act in the film, delivers a stunning meditation on what would be best for society, the way in which rich and poor, illiterate and literate, should marry and balance themselves. 
On one of the DVD's commentaries, Kiarostami's son talks about how the director himself seeded this idea with a young man and encouraged him to, to think of it as his own until he was telling the story of his idea as if it were his own. You'd never know in the film, although you do marvel at the ease at which he articulates his rather sophisticated vision. In that film as well, Kiarostami lightly and quickly looks at the filmmaking process from different angles. The young man and woman are set in a scene together, for example, in which she is not cooperating because she won't talk to him about his proposal. As the director and his crew wrangle over technique, the camera lifts up quietly to watch the two privately, as once again, he tries to persuade her. We can see this technique being played out on us, but it's so much fun to watch to keep the two things in our heads at the same time. There's humor in this kind of distancing and interrogation, and yet in the service of a very serious enterprise and story, and in a context, the aftermath of earthquake, that is deeply sobering. In many ways, Kiarostami is talking about a people in trauma, although they may not know it. The young boy does not know that his oppressive circumstances would be considered so by a young boy here in the U.S. But more than that, he looks at how our need to move through trauma can get us through and allow us to leave others behind, even in the making or savoring of a story. As the man and boy wend their way in their beat-up yellow car over destroyed roads and passing endless villagers walking with oil cans, toilets, possessions, water, anything they need to take to the tents they now call home, they stop once in a while, take someone on board, listen to their stories, or not. At one village, the boy distracts his father's attention, just as we are about to hear a young girl tell about her experience in the earthquake. We never hear it. The son begs his father to let him stay to watch a soccer game on a just-installed television for the tent community. The girl accepts her being overlooked calmly. The audience is conflicted. Who do we follow? How can we stop now when we're so close to the goal? It must be said that Kiarostami's reliance on children to pull at our heartstrings is a notable element of his success, and yet his other films, some not at all devoted to child subjects, are equally profound and emotionally compelling. In Life and Nothing More, the director goes into a house in which he sees a woman struggling with a rug. When she appears, we realize that it is the magnificently cantankerous grandmother of Where is the Friend's House. A wonderful find by Kiarostami, not unlike some of the brilliant comic actors that Ozu used as foils for the more sober and reserved characters in his films. It's a staged moment of revelation, of course, but it works. Kiarostami's films also continue to work because they bring up so many questions about filmmaking itself. Why does the filmmaker allow people on the side of the road to be left behind? How did he get people in the immediate aftermath of tragedy to act for him? How are we to feel about a young man who will not let a young woman alone in his quest for her hand in marriage? About the film director himself, who seems to encourage him? The miracle of his filmmaking is that he makes these questions a part of thinking about the film and watching the film, and makes that pleasurable. It's not a closing off of possibilities. Several American film directors come to mind when thinking of Kiarostami's technique. Certainly Charles Burnett, who used both actors and non-actors to help him create stories in the black neighborhoods in L.A. in a context we can now understand as traumatic or post-traumatic. Richard Linklater has blended documentary and narrative film in stories about aspects of our society. Sean Baker in Tangerine and the Florida Project takes on parts of society partially hidden from view and contemplates them. Frederick Wiseman 
who seemed as if he were the purest of documentarists, yet who spent hours in the editing room creating what in retrospect can seem like Greek dramas about the bureaucracies and institutions that surround us. Perhaps even Barry Jenkins, even with his evident focus on aesthetic style, can be seen as working in the Kiarostami mode once in a while. None of these film directors is doing exactly what Kiarostami did, mixing fact and fiction, immediate reality and abstraction, narration and dramatization to such a profound effect. And that's fine, they're doing what they want to do. But watching Kiarostami, you have to be struck by how he managed to redefine what film is good at by helping you see how you watch it. Do you want to simply watch a young boy negotiate his village environment ultimately to triumph? Film is good at doing this, but film can also enhance those obstacles, those stops along the way, those pockets of existence that you discover as you go along. These were Kiarostami's revelations and his genius, perhaps untransferable. Thanks again, Breta. Now here's a Japanese classic that has just been re-released on the Criterion Collection. The Human Condition is one of the great anti-war films of all time, released in three big parts from 1959 through the early 60s, directed by Masaki Kobayashi and starring Tatsuo Nakadai, who became a major film star after this movie, also appearing in Kobayashi's Harikiri and in uh, Kurosawa movies. It's really in six 90-minute parts, which means that one can watch the new Criterion Blu-ray of the set, uh, one movie a night over the course of several evenings. Although you're not going to feel very good about humanity after <laughs> seeing it because it is a story of an idealistic progressive whose, whose beliefs are challenged in the remote Manchurian ore factory that the Japanese have colonized in the early 1940s. After experiencing frustration with the company and the bureaucracy, at the end of the movie, the f part two, he is drafted. And the second set of films, what is the third part, is his full metal jacket phase, followed in part four with a battle scene that must have influenced saving Private Ryan. The final two movies recount his efforts to escape from China with the remaining soldiers and his troop, and then his gulag archipelago phase. These are great movies. They're immaculately photographed and edited, sometimes feeling a little bit on the academic side, say like a David Lean epic or a stately George Stevens film, and sometimes Sometimes the acting verges on silent histrionics, but if you give yourself over to the film, it makes an incredible statement. There are a few extras on it. There's an excerpt from a 1993 Directors Guild of Japan interview between Kobayashi and Masahiro Shunoda, another great film director, plus an appreciation of Kobayashi and the film with Shunoda, that's from 2009, as is a brief interview with actor Tatsuo Nakadai about some of the hardships he experienced in filming the... There's a trailers and then there's in the packet there's an essay by critic Philip Kemp who contributes to Sight and Sound. And it's an epic in the true sense of the word and will take an epic amount of your time to watch it, but if we can sit down and binge 13 hours of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, surely we can dedicate nine hours to one of the great classics of global cinema. And you are listening to Film at 11 here on Community Radio, KBOO Portland. Jeff Godsell from Los Angeles now makes a case for this 1959 French horror film. In the late 50s, the horror film genre got a big boost when Hammer Films in Britain 
released Curse of Frankenstein and Horror of Dracula. With respectable budgets, decent acting, and bright red blood, horror was hot again. And this was good news for Italian filmmakers like Mario Bava and later Dario Argento. But the rest of Europe was not so quick to follow, especially in France. The audience was there, but who would make the films? Producer Jules Borcon decided to answer that question. He bought a rather lurid novel and to keep the project prestigious enlisted the screenwriting team of Pierre Boileau and Thomas Narcissac, the team that had written Diabolique for Clouseau in 55 and had just completed Vertigo, no less, for Alfred Hitchcock. With the addition of director Georges Franjou would come one of the most fascinating and unusual horror films of all time, Eyes Without a Face, or Les Yous Sans Visage, from 1960. Eyes Without a Face would not be like the Hammer films at all. For one thing, it would be in black and white. And for another, according to the notes by David Collad included with the Criterion DVD, Franchu was told by the producer, not too much blood, the French censors don't like that, and no animals being tortured, that upsets the British, and no mad scientists, since the Germans are sensitive about that whole Nazi thing. And then he was handed a story about a mad doctor who tortures animals while cutting off women's faces. Well, not to worry, while that lurid description is technically true, it doesn't begin to describe the artful, even elegant way in which Eyes Without a Face unfolds. Dr. Genesia, played by Pierre Brasseur, is a renowned plastic surgeon, practicing at his clinic and lecturing on transplants. Unbeknownst to the public, his daughter Christiane, presumed missing, is actually sequestered within the doctor's suburban villa, a victim of a car accident caused primarily by her father's impatience. Christiane's face is horribly disfigured. All the mirrors in the house have been removed and her father insists that she wear a face-like mask, revealing only her eyes. Until, that is, when he can perform the groundbreaking full face graft to restore her once fragile beauty. And that requires new faces, new bodies of girls procured and disposed of by his assistant Louise, played by the always enigmatic Alida Valley. Louise's devotion to Dr. Genesier stems from his once successfully restoring her face after a similar but less serious accident. Christiane, played by Edith Scobe, is left to wander the house like a ghost, inside her white housecoat and ethereal mask. The image of the waif-like actress moving with almost balletic grace is just one example of what makes Eyes Without a Face so unforgettable. The operation itself, that is the removal of the new victim's face, caused a rather famous fainting at the Edinburgh Film Festival when it was first shown. Franju shoots it in his now familiar matter-of-fact way, emphasizing the tools of the doctor's task, the equipment needed, the horror rising out of the stark reality of the surroundings. When the unfortunate victim awakens, her head bandaged, 
she realizes enough of what has happened. She escapes from the room in which she's been imprisoned and finds her way to the top floor of the villa. An open window affords her the relief she seeks as she plummets to her death below. When her body is discovered in the river, Dr. Genesia is summoned by the local authorities to see if he could identify the body as his missing daughter, despite the body's disfigured face. The doctor seizes the opportunity to falsely identify the girl. They will no longer be looking for Christiane, much to the chagrin of the father of the true victim. The operation on Christiane's face is a success. She sits at the dinner table with her father and Louise as they can now speak of the future. And we can, for the first time, see actor Edith Scobb's true face, angelic, almost translucent. Christiane is encouraged to smile, but not too much. But their happiness is short-lived. First, the pigmentations, and gradually the rejection of Christiane's new skin grafts. Franchu has said that for him, Eyes Without a Face was less a story of horror as one of anguish. It is Christiane's story. And to reveal the ending to anyone who hasn't seen this film would be to rob them of the experience of one of the most haunting and lyrically beautiful endings in all of cinema. Two years later, in 1962, Eyes Without a Face was dubbed into English, slightly cut, and renamed in the U.S. as The Horror Chamber of Dr. Faustus, released in a double bill with The Manster. No wonder it went mostly unnoticed for decades. This is Jeff Godsell for Essentials of Cinema, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jeff. Finally, Matthew of Kebu's Gremlin Time now shares some of his recent findings. About a year ago, I uh, talked about a couple of uh, uh, science fiction films from Japan uh, in the late, from the late 50s and early 60s, uh, directed by Ashiro Hondu, most notably The H-Man, which was a nice combination of crime thriller and science fiction uh, a disaster movie. Um, now, I've got a couple of movies uh, from Arrow Films, and they've released a very nice uh, uh, disc set with uh, these two movies on it. But these are, uh, the, the set sort of came out on the coattails of the Last Falls uh, movie with uh, Elizabeth Moss, uh, the Invisible Man movie. It turns out that the Invisible Man was a sort of major genre character in Japan in the late 40s and early 50s. And so here we get one of these movies from that time, uh, directed by Nobuo Adachi, and with special effects, by Heiji uh, uh, Tsuburaya, who would go on to do the Godzilla movies, uh, returning to Toho Studios, but here he's at Dai Studios, and this was kind of a big production of the day, utilizing these sort of invisible man effects uh, perfected by Universal Studios in the 30s, and so here's Japan with their own sort of crime thriller, the invisible man appears. We've got like some scientist who reveals to this industrialist who's like a financial backer that he's come up with a way of making uh, uh, animals invisible. 
Of course, there's a few catches to it, as there always is in this type of movies. You know, it's like you can never come become uninvisible or you go crazy or something like that. So there's like a, a trade-off. And so in this movie, the scientist reveals that he's developed this. And then the next thing you know, he's knocked over head and, kick, and kidnapped. And then there's this string of crimes being committed around Tokyo by an invisible man. And many people think it's a scientist who disappeared not knowing he's been kidnapped and that he's gone rogue and is committing these crimes as, as an invisible man. And so it's all, it's all really very fun and really kind of a nice crime drama with um, science fiction elements. And uh, Nabuo Adachi does a really fine job. He like keeps things moving, keeps it interesting, all sorts of clever camera angles besides the well worked out invisible man effects unfortunately the script is a little weak it's like this crime wave seems a little lame and certainly an invisible man shouldn't like walk into a place with bandages all over him and start laughing maniacally and say I'm the invisible man and I'm here to rob you he's like oh just stand by the cor the curtain invisible like and then wait till snatch things but no they don't do that so it's it's really kind of a fun movie to watch. And this set includes another film from Dai from a couple of years later in the mid-50s. Now, this one is really weird. At first, you think there's another invisible man doing murders. And it's sort of like, well, the invisible man isn't going around doing murders, and he hates his reputation being ruined by whoever this other person is, killing people and making it appear to be him. And so what it actually is, and this is really kind of weird, it's that the, uh, the human flies, I mean, he's like shrunk down to be so small that air currents can just carry him around. And then when he gets to his victim, he goes back to his regular size and, and murders them. And so then the invisible man has to, uh, you know, track down the human fly. So it's really sort of fun and pulpy fiction. And like I said, it's escapist. Uh, this one's directed by uh, Mitsu Murayama. And um, the effects are this time handled by Turu Matoba. It's well put together. And it's a nice little crime story that zips along at a nice pace. And so this is a, a two-film desk from Arrow Films, The Invisible Man Appears, and The Invisible Man versus the Human Fly. Now, but the only extra in this is a little interview with uh, British writer Kim Newman, and he kind of just sort of gives an overall view of Invisible Man movies in general. But what's really cool is a very nice booklet, which is included in the set, which gives a nice background on the, the Japanese uh, film industry, the influence of the interest in the Invisible Man, and all sorts of interesting stuff in the uh, booklet. So that's from uh, Arrow Films, The Invisible Man Appears. Thanks, Matthew. And thanks for listening to Community Radio KBOO Portland. Film at 11 will be back next week. You are listening so to then. KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming online at kboo.fm. Hey, Michael here. I'm with the Tin Can Phone Podcast a radio show where you can hear about the influence incarceration has straight from the source. We tell you the story from the inside out. 
So make sure to check us out on KBU Community Radio every first Tuesday at 10 a.m. By the mole in the ground, I'd root that mountain down, and I wish I was a mole in the ground. Tune in to KBU Monday mornings at 9 for the Old Mole Variety Hour, your source for radically democratic news, views, reviews, and interviews, stories of ordinary and extraordinary people working to root down the oppressive institutions of capitalism. That's the Old Mole Variety Hour, Monday mornings at 9. I'm Amy Goodman, host.